Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're in a section of Acts right now, and it's, it's, it's a prolonged description of, of a miracle and all that came from it. Peter and John, if you recall, were, were walking toward the temple. It was for the evening sacrifice. We're probably at about 4.30 in the afternoon. And they're, they're walking up through those narrow streets of Jerusalem toward the temple, and uh, a merge happens. A, a man being carried on a on a stretcher uh, is is coming along at the same in the same direction, and they end up side by side in, in in their in their walking. When they start to turn, there's apparently they come to some street and they turn, and it's clear that Peter and John are going toward the temple to worship. That they're pious Jews. Uh, the man on the stretcher who is on his way there to, to beg. This is what he's done all his life for 40 years. He's, he's 40 years old, and for 40 years, he has not been able to stand on his feet. Uh, we really have a sense of what's wrong with him when Luke describes the healing. Apparently, his feet were just limp. They wouldn't, there was no strength in the feet. Uh, Luke, when he describes the healing, he's, he literally uses the medical term for the ankle bone. It's called the hammer. And he said the hammer was, was, became firm. So right in here, his, apparently his feet would never, never hold. And he's on this stretcher, and he asks for, for alms, alms of the poor, you know. And uh, Peter and John look at him and says they fixed their gaze. And then he obviously, with that kind of thing, drops his eyes. And they said, look at us. And he looks up, and Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. And then he grabs him by the right hand, says seizes him, by the right, grabs him by the right hand, and lifts him up and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And the man, and, I, I'm, and participated, we discussed in his heart, I think, and came up, and it says his, his soles of his feet and, his, and the hammer was strengthened. And suddenly he could stand on these feet now, he begins to walk around, jump, and to praise God, as you can imagine. Well, this, this goes into the temple, and Peter and John are headed for the south end of the temple in the portico of Solomon, great covered area where the Christians would gather. And I personally, I'm not even sure Peter and John were on their way to do the evening sacrifice. I think they may have come and held services when the crowds are moving in. <laughs> I think they're working the crowds, and why not? But anyway, the man comes with them, and he just, he won't let go of them. I mean, when you've had a healing like that, would you let go, you know? They're just hanging on to, hanging on to them. And everybody in the temple area has passed this guy. Anyone who's ever gone into the temple to worship has seen this, this beggar uh, because he was placed right on the steps on the inner courts of the temple, the eastern gate, the only gate you come in, Everyone, men and women, have passed this fellow. Uh, that's why he was there, to beg. And they've seen him as long as they can remember. They all know him, probably by name. 
And here he is jumping around and screaming and praising God in his healing. Can you imagine that? It causes the entire six football fields of stone. I mean, this is a huge court. Everybody who's pouring and milling around sees and hears this, and they, everybody begins to migrate down to this thing. And they're just stunned. They're just stunned at what they see. Peter preaches to them. He doesn't let up at all. He, 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 he goes right after them. We talked about that last week, the gift of guilt. And Peter goes after him and he says, so you crucified the Messiah. Remember when Pilate wanted to release him and, and, and you said, no, give us Barabbas, that awful murderer, instead of Messiah himself? You, you demanded he be crucified? You are so guilty. And he just nails him. And, and, and in the middle of this presentation, he's given uh, the solution. The police show up. The, basically, the temple uh, officials with the temple police arrive and arrest them, actually grab them, and put them under arrest. What, what is amazing to me, and what I, the, the thing I want to investigate today, everybody's seen the same miracle. Everybody's hearing the same message. And, you, and, and even though the, the, the temple police show up, and the religious leaders arrest them, put them in jail that night, Maybe, I misspoke, by the way, when I said 5,000 believe. They didn't. It says the number came up to 5,000. The total number of men, undoubtedly baptized, came up to 5,000 in the church that day. They'd been being added daily. We don't know how many days into, the, into this we are since Pentecost. But it's so many, nobody could count the number. So you're probably at 1,000 people, somewhere like that, has, have poured in on that day, even though... There was complete displeasure by the, by the religious leaders. They obviously don't like this message. And yet everybody's looking at the miracle. This, the, the religious leaders the next morning will, 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 will hold a trial. And they will sit in their formal semicircle and they'll stick these guys in the middle and they'll inquire of them. Not with, an under, not with, a, with a desire to understand. Not with, a, not with any kind of questioning in their mind of could Jesus maybe be the Messiah? I mean, look at this. Absolutely closed off to the possibility. All they're trying to do is figure out how to stop the damage politically. Isn't that amazing? Why does one heart see a miracle like this and hear a message and believe? And why does another heart close off and refuse to see. We're going to look today at the decisions of the heart. Father God, would you open our understanding? We want to understand these things in our own lives and as Lord, we minister you. So come Holy Spirit, open the word of God to us. And I pray for the grace to speak your word and not mine. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's, I'm going to read to you, uh, we'll do Acts chapter 4, verse 1 through 22, and by the grace of God, I will just sail through it. He said, meaning it at the time. All right, here we go. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men 
came to be about 5,000. They're, 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 they're counting the heads of households is what they're doing. So how many people do you figure really are becoming Christian? Well, you've, got, you've got wives, you've got children, probably two or three times that number. I, I mean, I'm certain it is. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And then he, he, then he takes it to them. He quotes from Isaiah a passage which says, when Messiah comes, the religious leaders will reject him. And he says, here, he is the stone which was rejected by you. Notice he adds that. The builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in, I mean, that's some Psalms. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed, Standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Why would you want to? Let me just, you hear this? This is, this is damage control. This is spin. We are discussing how to spin this. It's a problem to us. And so, pardon me, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further... They let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. A startling reality confronts us in this passage. We see two wildly different responses to the same event. On the one hand, there are hundreds, possibly over a thousand people, who repent and believe, and on the other hand, there is a much smaller group who seem to feel no inclination whatsoever to repent and believe, but instead actively work to find a way to stop others from doing so. Both groups saw the same miracle and heard the same message. Why then were there such different reactions? If they had only heard the preaching of a message, we might explain it by saying they doubted because they had no way of testing it. But it wasn't just a message. It was a message confirmed by an absolutely stunning miracle that not even those in the small group could deny. You would think that anyone confronted by such an amazing display of power would be forced to listen with an open mind. 
But the smaller group of people doesn't seem affected by the miracle at all. They're alarmed. They see the situation as a crisis, needing damage control. But there's no trace of self-doubt. So this passage provides a case study on the inner workings of the human heart. It makes us look deep inside and ask, why do some people say yes to God while others refuse to even see or hear his call? At this point, Peter and John were suddenly interrupted and placed under arrest. A group of priests arrived and brought with them the captain of the Levitical guard. Luke mentions that these, were official, these officials were members of a sect called the Sadducees, some of them, a group which specifically rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection. So you can see they, they're having problem with the whole message entirely. The captain undoubtedly brought some members of the guard with him to make the arrest. These would have been some of the Levites who were assigned to guard the gates and courts of the temple. Ten men were stationed at each of 24 locations. It was their job to see that no unclean person entered beyond the court of the Gentiles and to police any disruptions. Four of the stations were located in the inner courts and priests and Levites were stationed there together. There, I don't know that I was aware of it, maybe you were, but that, that there, there is 240 Levitical police, basically, and they can be armed, standing in 24 stations around the temple area at, at all times. There's a, there's a night watch, they're on for the whole night, and then there's four watches through the day that are rotated. So you've got these guard. By the way, this is the group that arrested Jesus. It wasn't Roman. This is the group that guarded the, the tomb. It wasn't Romans. I don't know how we got, I don't know how, it's, it's obvious. I'll show you, actually. But they show up with this guard. Verse two there, skip down to verse two. Luke describes the emotional condition of the leaders who arrived by saying they were worn out. <laughs> In other words, they had grown tired and angry because the apostles continually taught the people in the temple area, and especially because they were announcing that Jesus was the one who would someday resurrect the dead. They, they literally, Luke says they, were, they had it to hear. Uh, they were worn out. They were, they were harassed. They'd, they'd had it. They were angry. Verse 3. And since it, since it was growing late in the evening, they took hold of Peter and John and put them in a jail cell overnight, probably somewhere in the temple area. Verse 4, in spite of such obvious disapproval by the nation's religious leaders, many of those who were present believed. The number of men who considered themselves to be members of the church grew to a total of 5,000. And since the church had been growing daily following Pentecost, the exact number of those who believed that evening can't be determined, but it must have been large. When hearing this number, we shouldn't overlook the fact that at this point, Luke is only reporting the men so when believing women and children were added, the actual number would be two or three times as large. Friday. The next day, a very elite group of religious leaders gathered. It included rulers, mostly Sadducees, elders, scribes, mostly Pharisees, the high priest, who is Annas, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, and two more of his relatives who are otherwise unknown, John and Alexander. At the time, Annas was not actually serving as the high priest. Those years, 6 to 15 were his years. But he had, been, he had been removed from office by the Romans, but since the people of Israel viewed the high priest's office as one given by God for life, even though his title had been taken away, he was still thought of as the high priest. 
Furthermore, over the years, he arranged for five of his sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to hold the positions of high priest at one time or another. When Jesus was arrested, do you recall the first person he was taken to? It was Annas. And you think, well, Annas isn't the high priest. Caiaphas is. Why did, why did he take him to Annas? Because Annas is the old man. Annas is the one who, in the, in the eyes of the Jews, is the true high priest. Um, because the Romans have stripped him of his title, he sees to it that at that point in time, his son-in-law was sitting in the job. And then he would do his various sons. And, and, and who knows who John and Alexander are? They, they may be part of this, this whole equation too. So he keeps putting relatives in the job, getting them in. But he's the power behind the throne. He's the guy. So Luke just calls him that. He isn't, he isn't technically the high priest, but he is. So he's the high priest. Verse 7, Saturday. Peter and John, along with the layman who had been healed, stood in the middle of a semicircle, and it was that, a semicircle of leaders who were themselves seated. So they're all seated, and Peter, John, and the, and the lame man who's been healed are standing in the middle of this thing, facing them. This was a formal inquiry. The miracle itself couldn't be denied. So the question was carefully worded to imply that the apostles may have drawn upon an ungodly source of power, such as a false god or witchcraft. They, are, they asked, by what power or in what name did you do this? Well, who do you think can do this? I mean, it's ridiculous. Who does healing like that? I mean, you can talk all of the, you know, the witchcraft and chicken feathers you want to talk, but... This is, this, this is stunning. This is just absolutely no questions asked. A, a, a completely creative miracle. But, they're, so they're, but they're, you can tell they're, they're not believing anything or, or refusing to. And they're asking, so what power did you use? The question has two parts to it. The first asks, what kind of power did you use? And the second asks, who sent you to do this? To do something in someone's name means you're acting in another person's authority. You've been sent there. You are representing someone else standing in their place, as it were. The obvious answer to their question is, who but God could do such a thing? But they ignored this fact, hoping to find some basis in their answer to accuse them of a religious crime. Pattern of refusal. This isn't the first time this group of leaders has refused to see the truth about Jesus Christ. In fact, they had already been confronted with two miracles of greater magnitude than this healing of a man who'd been crippled for 40 years. Do you recall Lazarus? Yeah. Lazarus is a prestigious man. It's, a, it's, a, it's an elite family. Everyone knows them at his funeral. When he, I mean, all of that, when he's, when he's dying and at his funeral, you have top leaders of the nation. Everybody's gathered. Priests are there. When Jesus raises him out and calls him out of that, out of that tomb, the, the, there's a whole raft of high-level priests standing there watching this thing. Lazarus had been dead. They all knew him. Probably knew what he died of. I mean, probably knew he'd been sick for years. You know, whatever, who knows what? I don't know how the process was. And then Jesus calls him out of the grave. People all standing there watching. This isn't a hidden thing. Everybody's watching. Lazarus, come forth. And out comes this guy. Wrapped, seriously wrapped up, you know. Looking bad. And, and comes out. 
It, it said at the time people were so stunned and the, and the priests were so stunned that, that they had to drop back and have a meeting and say, if we don't do something, uh, the whole nation's going to believe it. We've got to stop this guy. Uh, you know what their plan was? Let's kill Lazarus. <laughs> Teach him to come back to life. And, you, know, you, know, you know, you stay dead when you're dead around here. More of that. So they decided we're going to kill Lazarus for, for coming back to life. And we're going we're to kill Jesus for bringing him back to life. Just stop a second. Would you have reacted that way? I mean, it's, this is idiocy. I mean, this, this is, I mean, who does that? You, you watch someone you've known for years who died. You know they died. You were there at their funeral. And then you see the guy come out wrapped up with goo all over him and rags and coming out of that tomb. And if, you know, some of you watched it happen. And your, and, and your response is what? How do we kill him? Do, do you understand? This, something's, something's gone on in here. I mean, nobody normal does this. There's another, no, there's another miracle. I want to walk you through that one for a second. The resurrection of Jesus himself is problematic for them. Go with me to John 20, verse 9. I want you to see the one verse. John 20, verse 9. Mary Magdalene had come to the tomb. This is the resurrection. We're, we're, this, is, this is resurrection day. It's Easter morning, if you will. And she's gone to the tomb, and his... He's not there. She comes running back and tells Peter and John, someone's stolen the body. Notice no one's thinking resurrection here among his disciples. Somebody's stolen the body. Peter and John run out to, to check on it. Uh, who gets there first? John does. He's the younger one. He, he gets there first. He stands and peers into the thing. And what does he see? He sees those, those, those strips of linen. You know, They wrap like 75 pounds of of myrrh and aloes and stuff. They packed you in these spices and then they wrapped you with strips of linen, like a mummy. You know, so, so they've got this mummy wrapping thing and it literally says that the wrappings are still there but they're empty. <laughs> Is that cool? I mean, so it's not, nobody stole the body. Nobody can get it out and then <laughs> redo that. The thing's empty. It's, it's collapsed with this empty thing and then the head cloth is folded in the corner. And so he looks in, and it actually says, and, 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 and he believed. And then Peter finally comes huffing and puffing up, up the thing, and, and he comes into the thing, and Peter doesn't stop. You know, there's no, there's no social hesitancy in him at all. Uh, Peter just, boom, 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 right into the, into the thing and, and looks at this whole thing. And, and then notice verse 9. For as yet they did not understand from Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now you tell me, did Jesus tell them he was going to rise from the dead? Lots of times? What's the matter with these people? His own disciples had, first of all, no expectation. Even when the body is gone, they're puzzling over it. Contrast this with this group. Now, now turn with me to Matthew 27, verse 62. Because they may not have understood, but, but somebody did. Matthew 27, verse 62. Now, on the next day, 
This is at the resurrection. The, the, or, or after the crucifixion, excuse me. The, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm to rise again. Who did hear Jesus say he was going to rise? The, 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 the high priests and the leaders. They heard him loud and clear. Guy said he's coming back to life. His own disciples? I don't know. It is, that's, there's, a, there's a case study in its own right. And we, I, all right. Verse 64. Therefore, Give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, now look at this. What does he say to them? Say, you have a guard. Who's their guard? Come on, I've already told you. Levitical, the Levitical police. It's not Romans. There aren't Roman soldiers guarding this thing. It's the Levitical police. It's Jews standing in front of this thing, and they stamp the seal on it. And, and the Jewish guard, the Jewish Levites, are standing defending it. Isn't that interesting? Go and make it secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guard and set a seal on the stone. Now let your eye go down to chapter 28, verse 11. Now he's risen from the dead. Um, every, you know, the, the, the guard, these, the, their own guard comes back and says he's gone. And verse 11, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they'd been instructed. And this story has, was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Do you notice what they didn't say? Find that body. Find the body. They didn't say that. They know where John lives. John and the high priest know each other. That's how come he was, in the tri- he was able to watch the whole thing with brought Peter in. Remember that? Yeah, John probably has a prestigious family, probably has a home in the city. So they, they, could, they can find this thing and they can, they can force an answer. They can find out. They can get in touch if they want. This isn't a mystery as to who these people are. He doesn't say find the body. He says, here's some money, lie about it. Isn't that interesting? Interesting, it's amazing. Now, God, God's view of the heart. Would you turn to me a passage I think you've read before? John 3.16. John 3.16. I'll start at verse 11. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. At night, Nicodemus is one of the Sanhedrin. He is one of these leaders. And Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I'll tell you what he just told him. He says, what I am telling you about spiritual matters is not something that I, I am 
speculating about God. It is not something that I've been taught by someone about God. I am reporting to you what I have seen, for I have come from heaven. In case you have any doubt who Jesus says he is, Jesus says, I've come from heaven, and I am reporting to you these things. Isn't that amazing? All right. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses, if you recall, they took one of those, one of those battle standards. It would be a long pole with, a, with their symbol, the tribe's symbol on the top. They took a battle standard and they put a dead snake on the thing and hung it up, stuck it up. And everyone who looked at the dead snake was healed. Do you recall this? They, from all those snake bites. And Jesus says, just as, as Moses took and, and put that dead snake up on a stick and he, it hung there dead. So everyone who sees me lifted up on a, on, a, on, a, on a tree, on a pole, dead, will. What does he say? Everyone who believes in him will have what? Eternal life. Yeah. I'm going to die. I, Messiah, who come from heaven and reporting to you what I have seen and know from God himself. For I have been, I am from heaven. He says, I report to you, they're going to lift me up on a pole like that dead serpent. And when people look at me they'll ha- and believe in me, they'll have eternal life. Is that powerful or what? John 3.16. For God, why don't you read it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I'm going to go on. Just read with me for a bit. For God did not, come on. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now stop there. Jesus just said, everybody stands condemned as they are. There's only one way out. You must believe on my sacrifice to come out of that condemnation. Did you hear that? Now, let me read this. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds, mine say exposed, but evaluated by God, reproved in the King James. It's a much better word. His deeds will be reproved. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. His works have been done in God. He was doing them in God. There is a moment of realization when the human heart suddenly sees God's truth and knows what it has seen. In that instant, a decision is made, not a mental decision based on the processing of data, but an emotional decision based on an evaluation of the cost of acknowledging openly what has been seen, of the personal changes that will be required. Did you follow that? There comes a moment. There's there's all sorts of ignorance. I don't know these things. I don't really understand these things. And then there comes the moment where the light goes on. You go, oh, I see it. And you know what you've seen. 
This, this takes place in a flash. And when, the, when you suddenly see and you know, you go through a processing and it's not a processing of data weighing the evidence. It has nothing to do with, with these kinds of arguments, these cerebral things. It's a heart decision. You're counting the cost. Ah, oh, he's real. If I say yes to him, here's the price I'll have to pay. And you count it in a second. Often it takes only a fraction of a second to decide whether I will or won't pay the price. And if not, to turn away and pretend I never saw it. This is when a line is crossed and a, the person begins to harden their own heart to silence their conscience. Listen to how Jesus describes the process. We already read it. He says there are two kinds of people. Did you notice? He doesn't say there are good people and bad people. In fact, he says everybody's bad. How many in here have been bad? Five, ten, about a third of you. In, in fact, he says everybody is bad and remain under judgment unless they receive his sacrifice by faith. But he says that some people come toward God's truth when they see it, while others turn away. Some draw closer, others pull back. And then he tells us why. He says some are trying to live by what they believe to be right. The term he uses is the one doing the truth. They aren't sinless, but they are trying to do what's right. They have the spiritual awareness to want eternal life. But there are others who have already been doing what their conscience tells them is wrong, and they like the way they're living. He calls these the one doing worthless things. These don't want to be told to stop. So when something comes along that makes them feel guilty or requires them to change, they actually run away. They actually hate being confronted by God's truth. So Jesus is telling us that God's truth, like light, exposes what's hidden in the human heart. Our response to it reveals our deepest hopes and desires. When you see the truth of God, it's like a light, and it exposes the heart. It isn't that there's good people and bad people, but there are people who sincerely are trying, are looking for what's true. And there are people who have already decided they like the way they're living. They like the pleasures and the, and the, and the things of this world. They already know they're doing things that are wrong, and they like it, and they don't want anyone to tell them to stop. Does that make sense? Jesus says that's what divides the situation. What does God require? Coming to God always requires us to make painful choices. This is because every human heart is born with wrong attitudes. Every one of us, even the nicest person, is infected from birth with a spiritual disease that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Look, you've got to come to grips with that fact. I don't care how nice you think you are. The root, at the bottom line, you aren't. Every, and this, is, this isn't like there's nice people here and, and, and good people. See, this is how the world thinks. There's good people and a few bad ones, a few bad apples. 
But most of us are essentially good at nature. The Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says at nature, you're selfish. At nature, you're proud. That you come to that literally from birth. It is a disease that every human is infected with from, our, from Adam and Eve. It comes all the way down. So we have that problem. We're, we have this, this, this issue in our heart. Each of us may express these wrong attitudes differently, but one way or another, we are all selfish, rebellious, and proud. Doesn't mean everything we do is selfish, rebellious, and proud. Doesn't mean we don't do any good things. That doesn't mean that at all. But it means there is this, this issue deep inside us, and those things are done. So no one comes to God without deciding to die to things we love. Here are three painful choices each of us must make. First of all, confession. I have done bad things that are no one else's fault. I'm not just a victim. I have not just made mistakes. I have made bad choices. Why don't you say, I have made bad choices? Yeah, not just accidentally. In fact, if I'm honest... I do or think things all the time that I know are wrong, selfish, and even cruel. Can anyone say yes to that? Yes. No. Second one, submission. I have at times refused to be told no when it's something I really want to do. Now, is there anyone would say I didn't do that? Come on. <laughs> Get over it. But now I bow my knee to God. He is God and he is holy and he has the right to command me to become like him. In fact, I want to become like him. With the help of the Holy Spirit, I intend to bring my life into line with the word of God. I just don't believe. I submit. See, there's, a, there's an issue. There's an admission of my own, forgive the word, evil or wickedness. We, want, we look at all kinds of psychological processes to avoid the conclusion, and, and everything I do isn't evil. All that I am isn't evil it is true at all. But is there evil in my life? Have I been selfish? Have I been cruel? Have I done things that I know, just plain know, were wrong when I did them? The Bible says every one of us does that. Every single one of us does that. And so we're coming into grips with reality when we, when we acknowledge it. And the third one, Admission, I, I admit I am helpless to please God on my own. I can't be saved by just trying harder. I desperately need his help. Up to now, I've been independent and proud. I've assumed I didn't need anyone's help. But now I know my flesh is too powerful for me. Even if I could control my outward behavior, I can't control my thoughts and passions. Make sense? Yeah, this, this, is, this is the human condition. These and all three of these matters, whether I'm admitting my weakness, I'm admitting my, 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 my pride and desire to not have anyone rule me, or I'm admitting the fact that I have made moral choices that are wicked and wrong, all three of those come under the word repentance. This is, where, this is what the word repentance means, saving faith. There are three painful, these three painful decisions often are summarized in the Bible by the one word repentance, and the human heart must repent to be saved. But there are, is also something else God requires, faith. The kind of faith that saves us is the decision to trust that God will be merciful to me even though I don't deserve it. To believe that he has made a way to pay for my sins. 
Such trust has always been possible for human beings, even in ancient times, when there was very little knowledge of how God would accomplish this. Here are some early examples of such faith. The first one I have there for you, Genesis 4, is speaking of of, of Seth, the, the son of Adam and Eve. And it says there in that verse, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. At that time, it says men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. What did it mean to call on the name of the Lord? It meant they would pile up stones and they would make an altar. And that they would take a a sheep or a a goat and they they would lay their hands on this thing and they would confess their sins over it. And then they'd cut its throat and then they would sacrifice it, in effect, by the smoke, offering this appeal to God that would rise like a prayer. What are they doing? They're admitting their sin, and they are trusting that God will be, say, merciful. You see it? How do you get saved? You confess your, and you appeal to God for, the thing you know is the name of Jesus. Now, we'll, I'll, I'll explain more of this. Watch. Hebrews eleven seven. I mean, that's a, this is a dramatic verse. By faith, Noah became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. How many in here have the righteousness according to faith? So did he. You follow? Noah was as righteous by faith as you are. Wow, how did that happen? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham... I never saw it before. I just got to point this out. I always thought it said Abraham believed God and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And I always thought it meant that God had said, you're going to have children like the stars of the sky. And Abraham believed God. This is how I've memorized it. I've always said it. Abraham believed God and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So he believed that he'd have children. Cool. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It's right in front of you. I never saw the end. And that makes a huge difference. He believed in the Lord, so is what it says. He believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him, to him his righteousness. That's a different level. I hadn't seen it. Then, then I want you to read verse, uh, Genesis 22, 13, and 14 out loud with me. This is powerful. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Then Abraham went and took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. What is the, what's the situation? He's, he's there on Mount Moriah, and he, who's, who's on the altar? Isaac is. He's tied him up. He's ready to, 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 to sacrifice him as he feels the Lord has asked him to do. The angel stops his hand, and, and, he, and he says, and, and Abraham looks, and there is a ram, a wild ram, caught by its horns in some kind of bush, and it can't get out. And it's, it's over there. And Abraham goes over, takes this ram, and releases his son, and sacrifices the ram in the place. And he says... He names the place, and he calls it what in Hebrew? He calls the place Jehovah Jireh. Now, come on. Every time you ever heard the term Jehovah Jireh, it meant you'd get a car. (laughs) Didn't it? 
That's all you've ever heard. No one has ever told you anything about Jehovah Jireh other than you would get rich and you'd get a car, Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean it at all, does it? What does Jehovah Jireh mean? God will provide. What will he provide? A sacrifice. The Lord will provide his own ram. Do you know, by the way, the shofar, the Jewish trumpet? It's a, it, the real one is a ram's horn. Now, the one I have is a big antelope horn. But the, the, the real one is a ram's horn. Do you know why they blow the ram's horn? To remind the Lord that in the mountain of the Lord, he will provide a sacrifice. Is that incredible? I didn't know that till just a few weeks ago. The ram's horn that they're blowing is that ram. They're reminding the Lord. He said he'd provide in the mount of the Lord. That is so powerful. What was Abraham? Did he know the name of Jesus? He'd actually served. He would serve him dinner. By the way, it's non-kosher dinner. David served. Yeah, he didn't know then. Um, it was a non-kosher meal. And, and, and he served two angels and the Lord himself. So he, 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 he knew him that way. Did he know his name? Did he? No, he didn't. He didn't know his name. Did he know about the cross? But he trusted that someday God would do something. He would provide his own sacrifice, his ram. That somehow God would make a place, do something to atone his sins. And so Abraham laid his hands on that ram, confessed his sins, and called to God for mercy. I just want you to see that faith and the calling on the Lord for mercy, the trust, the faith that calls and believes that God will be merciful to us, that God will make a way, that he will provide somehow, was always for ancient people available. It's always been for ancient people available. Now the wonder is now, you know what he's done. You know that he sent his son. You know mysteries that they would long to have known. You know things that they didn't know. But they knew enough to call on God for mercy. We now look backward in time and say, we know what he did. He sent his son. He died on the cross. He bore our sins. Isaiah 53, hallelujah. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the ram. Here's the ram. Here's, here's the one we've been laying our hands on and appealing to God for. No other name. There is a point where Jehovah Jireh, God will provide, becomes a person named Jesus. What was once a mystery, a promise that God would someday provide a sacrifice is now revealed. The gospel proclaims that this sacrifice was made by God's son who became a man and died on the cross. No longer do I look into the future and trust that someday God will provide. Now I can trust what he has already provided. Now I can call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. Application. These decisions of the heart we're seeing being made in the book of Acts are still being made today. What, I'm, what, what we're seeing today is here was this great crowd of people and they had just recently chanted, probably 60 days earlier, give us Barabbas. They had said crucify him, but they were deceived. They didn't really know what they were doing. They thought this was an imposter. On the other hand, here are religious leaders 
and they know better. Many of them. Some don't, some do. Know better. They know what they're doing. And they have chosen, they, they said, if we admit he's Messiah, he'll take our place. We will lose the, le- the priesthood. We will lose the leadership of this nation. We'll lose the riches and the power and the influence we've had, the respect that we get. We lose that if he takes our place. And so we will not see. Does, he can raise the dead. He, he, can, he, can, he can do miracles that are simply breathtaking. It doesn't matter. I won't see. I don't want to see. I don't want to see. There are those who gladly respond when presented with the light of the gospel. They're willing to confess they don't deserve to go to heaven and need God's mercy. They are willing to bow their knee, surrendering control of their life to Jesus. They are willing to admit they desperately need God's wisdom and strength day by day. That they can't live a holy life by themselves. They are willing to believe that Jesus is God's answer to their need. To trust him alone to save them. Let's evaluate our own hearts. Have I confessed, surrendered, admitted my weakness, and called on the name of Jesus to save me? If not... Am I ready to do so today? Would you stand with me? Let me ask the question. Anyone here today, and as you hear this message, you may have been one of those who has, at some point in your past, had the lights go on. You spotted the truth. Your eye caught it. The the Lord revealed it to you. And you knew deep inside that Jesus was the Savior. But in that same second, you processed the cost. You processed what you would have to sacrifice. Maybe it was, was, you you felt you would have to uh, give up something precious to you. Maybe you thought, oh, he'll send me to Borneo as a missionary. Uh, Maybe you were a young person and you thought, oh, he'll make me be single all my life. I can never get married. Can I remind you he invented sex? (laughs) And his first command was be fruitful and multiply. So, I mean, just, he's not got a problem with you marrying. So, but but if, you, if, you had, if you had these kinds of thoughts, the devil will supply his own, by the way. He comes in and lies to us. He, he says, oh, you'll lose everything. You'll be destitute. He'll, 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 and, and he takes horrible scenarios. But we believe them. The revelation is there. He's the real one. He's the savior. I get it. And then I think, oh, man, if I say yes, if I surrender, he'll change this he'll take this he'll make me give up this and in some cases you bet he will so we close our eyes and we move on quickly pretending we never really saw it all or coming up with philosophical arguments things to salve our conscience but at root you know at root you know who's the savior maybe today Maybe right now you're willing to say, I'm through with the game. I'm through playing games. I know Jesus is the Savior. I reckon, when you go through that list, have I done wicked things? Yes, I certainly have. If I'm honest, I'm not going to deny that. I can see that. I have been independent and rebellious. I don't want anyone, including God, to tell me no. But, you know, I've made enough trouble. Sometimes we have to do this. I've made enough trouble in my life that I'm really tired of of my own ways. 
That's a wonderful moment when you get sick and tired of your own dumb mistakes. You're tired of hurting your family, tired of the things that come out of your mouth, kind of attitudes, and you say, I'm, I'm tired of them now. I want a Lord. I need a Lord. I need somebody who can guide me and teach me. I need somebody to come into my life now and direct me. You're maybe willing to admit you're weak, that your willpower, you're not good enough as you are, that you can't bring your flesh and even your inner attitudes into line with what you know to be right. You need power, and you don't have it, and you know it. Anyone today saying, I'm through running away. I receive Jesus. I, this day, I confess my sin. This day, I bow my knee. This day, I call on a Savior and say, I'm helpless. Save me. I call in the name of Jesus to be saved. Anyone want to raise your hand and say, that's me today. I'm making that decision. I respond to that. Yes, praise the Lord. Anyone else? Yes, praise the Lord. Yes, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. This is not a game. This is, this is, this is, this is how we start. I'm going to call you, or invite you. When we, well, I'm going to pray with you, but I'm going to invite you to get water baptized. I'm, this is no game, not just a hand in the air today. But you are like these, like these men and women that joined the church. You, you're becoming part of the body of Jesus Christ, whether it's here or some other believing fellowship, but you're going to go on with Jesus. You're, not going to, you're, you're in. You're in. You are one. You are one. One last in request. Anyone right now say, all right, I bow my knee. I call it what it is. I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I need to lay my hands on that ram, confess my sin, and call on God for mercy. And the name of that ram, Jehovah Jireh, is Jesus Christ, his beloved son. I lay my hands on him and call on him for mercy. Anyone else need to raise your hand? All right, church, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this day, I allow your Holy Spirit to shine your light on my heart. You'll see there wickedness. I have been selfish. I have been cruel. I've been dishonest. I've been rebellious to you. I admit it today. I, I confess it. I have, Lord, not wanted you to tell me what to do. But this day, that comes to an end. This day, I call on you. Lord Jesus Christ, be my Lord. Guide me. I put my hand in yours, and I will follow. I will serve you. I surrender to you the rest of my life it is in your hands I want to live out those wonderful things that you have preordained that I should walk in I am your child your servant and I will gladly live for you Jesus Christ you promised the gift of the Holy Spirit I'm weak and without you I cannot do these things so this day, I receive the Holy Spirit. Would you put your hand on your heart for a minute? Ho Holy Spirit, and go ahead and pray with me. Holy Spirit, come 
dwell deep inside of me. Never leave me for all eternity. I need your power. I need your goodness. I need your conviction. I need your strength. You are the one who's good. And I depend on you with all my heart. Come and dwell within me. Jesus Christ, Son of God, who became a man, who died on the cross for my sins. I confess you, my great Savior. Through you, I have mercy. I surrender to you, my great Lord. Through you, I have purpose. And Jesus Christ, giver of the Holy Spirit, I receive the fullness of God living within me right now in your wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.